0: An old Scottish pastor, who was also a hymn writer. He lived from 1808 to 1889, wrote these words on the topic of endurance and difficulty. "The road to the kingdom is not so pleasant and comfortable and easy and flowery as many dream." It is not a bright, sunny avenue of palms. It is not paved with triumph, though it is to end in victory. Determination is glory, honor, and immortality. But on the way, there is the thorn in the flesh, the sackcloth, and the cross. Recompense later, but labor here. Rest later, but weariness here. Joy and security later, but here endurance and watchfulness the race the battle the burden the stumbling block and oftentimes the heavy heart end quote it was right in the 1800s and it's right in 2023 as far as i can tell it's a hard journey it is a war it is a battle there is a yoke involved but by god's grace his the burden and the the uh, the yoke of Christ is easy, his burden is light, because how he sustains us and walks with us. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it's a hard journey to heaven. It's a hard journey to the end of the story, where there's glory. That's why we're thankful for passages like Second Peter chapter one, verses three through five. I know you're familiar with them, but I want these words in your mind as we start this evening. Go back to verse 2 Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to stop reading there. It is a reminder as we launch out into this fifth part of our series this evening that God has made promises to all of us for this long journey where we must have endurance through difficulty. But it's through these difficulties that we see godliness and faith and knowledge and moral excellence and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness and love take shape in our lives. As a matter of fact, reading these verses, we don't get to develop any of those virtues outside of difficulty. But in the midst of all this and at the, at the front of, the, of this text, we're promised no matter what we're going to go through, we'll have what we need in the promises that we have in Christ, the promises we have in his word. This is one of the main passages, as you know, that that presents to us the beautiful doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. We'll never know anything, any any trial in this life that we are not completely equipped for uh, from a spiritual perspective. It's what... Paul agrees with in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 15 through 17. Timothy, from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ. Even beyond that, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Scripture makes a clarion call, reminding all of God's people, all of the called all of the regenerated, that his word will be enough for you no matter what you face. Watch this. Without exception. And again, my definition of sufficiency is God's word alone is enough to address any spiritual need in any person, in any generation, without exception. Now that's okay when we wave a good doctrine like that in the air and, and we gather around the banner and cheer it on. It's quite another thing when we find ourselves perhaps in a marriage and within that marriage there is a disobedient or unsaved spouse. And there are sweet seasons in that marriage, but there are also difficult seasons in that marriage. It may be a good marriage. It may be a, a, a marriage filled with turmoil. In the marriages of turmoil, it's, there's a constant desert through long seasons. But in other marriages where there's no turmoil, it's still nonetheless a mixed marriage, if you will, there's a burden of the heart over the spiritual condition of my spouse. I might love my disobedient or even more unsaved spouse, and we have a good marriage, but my heart just aches for what's coming up at the end of the road. And that's why a doctrine like the sufficiency of Scripture suddenly is extra precious to us. We know we have what we need in the Word. It it promises the resources we need, and I hope that this point in our series you can see that it has delivered those resources. We've rolled out... um, what we find in scripture to be the process of changing uh, growth. Uh, the RRR or repent, renew and replace from Ephesians 4, 22 to 26. We'll look at that in, in a minute again but we have used that as our vehicle to press through these weeks. The resources have been promised for endurance and the resources have been delivered for this endurance. But God has promised and delivered a not only a timelessly effective and efficient means of perseverance in a difficult marriage he's provided one more reality not just the how but the daily hope that you need to get through each day and that's what i want to talk to you about this evening in part 5 is the daily hope it's real it's real so let's remember these three R's here without unpacking them sufficiently again. Uh, you've, you, you know these now. Repent follows along with Ephesians 4.22, which says, put off the old man. Renew is Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And replace is verse 24 of Ephesians 4, put on the new man. And these aren't merely a linear um, order of boxes to check off. Okay, I've said I'm sorry, I've memorized a verse on the topic, and now I'm going to try harder. Is that all this is? No. No, we've said that this rubric that we've been learning together, and it's represented in Ephesians 4, but it's also in Colossians 3, it's in Romans 6 through 8, it's in Psalm 119, it's in Romans 14, it's in James 1. We've seen it all over the place. But renewing is our entrance point and the state that we have to constantly stay in. When we find ourselves in a marriage to an unbeliever or um, or a disobedient uh, professing believer, we must enter at the renew. We must say, I have to know what God's word says to me in a situation like this. And that's where we started out. We, we entered this series in part one with the renew, and, and we found out, well, what is it that Allows me to to be in a marriage like this. It's it's knowingly marrying an unbeliever, or or maybe getting married before I was a believer, and I got saved and my spouse didn't, or or perhaps um, I thought I did marry in a believer, and time has shown otherwise. That's that's what the scripture says had happened. One of those three. But we also took a hard look as to the fact that there are others in scripture that have had a similar situation as yours, perhaps, if this is where you find yourself. We didn't stop off at Solomon or Isaac, um, uh, but we did stop off with a lady named Abigail and her husband named Fool, Nabal. And suddenly, though it was a hard story, but it was a story of rescue for Abigail eventually, um, we found out that there were other people that were suffering like we are. And and suddenly, as we got into scripture, we started getting glimmers of hope that we're not alone in this. and we understand how we got here. And, and the way scripture describes it is, is we find ourselves saying, yes, that's where I am. And just that gives hope. And then we started asking questions. Well, what must I repent of? And we, what must I put off if I'm in a marriage like this? And we saw two main headings. I must put off manipulation. And I must put off nagging. I, I don't withdraw or withhold things from my spouse in protest in order to manipulate them to come my direction on the religion stuff, nor am I supposed to be nagging them, and Peter was very clear in warning us about that in 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter 3, 1-6. through 6. Those need to be repented of, and sometimes maybe often. We only know that because our mind's being renewed, and scripture addresses it. But we don't just look left, we also look right as we renew our minds, and Scripture not only tells us what to put off, but it also tells us what to put on. And that was our last study, and we learned that we need to put on these things. We need to choose to make God our refuge. We need to choose to make Christ our example. We need to choose to see trials as opportunities. We need to choose to saturate our words with grace. We need to shun complaining and correcting and concluding. We need to choose to seek wisdom from counselors, and we need to choose to follow scripture regarding confrontation when it pertains to another believer. And all those words of choosing, those were acts of obedience to scripture that we only know because we renewed our minds. We found out what scripture says to people like us that might be struggling in a relationship or a marriage as we're studying here. But that word choose is even undergirded with the very grace of Jesus. It's Christ, the spirit of Christ that works in us in these difficult marriages, to, to do and to will, to desire and do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 13. So that's where we've been. This rubric has proven itself sufficient for us. And it's not one and done. Just like when you go out to E Course Road, and we use this illustration often in this series, I have learned, and you have learned, I hope, that before you cross Ecorse Road, you have to look left and you have to look right before you cross that road. You say, well, has there come a point where we outgrow that? I mean, if we do that well enough, is it, does, it come, does it come to a point where I don't have to worry about looking left and right before I move forward? And the answer is, you never get to that point. I never get to that point. Our whole lives... If there's change that needs to happen, even in a difficult marriage, we have to get into the word of God, look left, what do I need to put off, look right, what needs to be put on, and I depend on Christ to, to, to repent and put on as he has prescribed. That never ends. It's work. As the hymn writer said that I quoted at the beginning of our time together, it's a battle, it's a road, it's a thorn in the flesh, it's a crown. It leads to a crown. But what I want to do tonight is this. I said that Scripture not only gives us the action plan, if you will, but it gives us a daily hope. What is your daily hope that keeps you, listen, in the game of renewing your mind and putting off and putting on every single day in a difficult marriage to an unbeliever or a disobedient believer? What is your hope every day that keeps you afloat that keeps your batteries charged up spiritually, that keeps light in your eyes, and even a, a kingdom skip in your step on the worst days. What is that hope? And that's what I want to give you this evening. And as you can tell from the outline, it's not a long one. First of all, remember that God may use you to draw your spouse to himself in rescue. God may use you to draw your spouse to himself and rescue you. say, well, we've only been married 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. And my question is, are you both still breathing? Then the last chapter hasn't been written yet. It took 40 years for our Lord to weed out some problems from the children of Israel in the desert. 40 years. It took 70 years for... Um, the Babylonian captivity to end and God keep his promise of a return to the the land. Be patient. It's hard. But who knows what this story is going to end up like. God may use you to draw your spouse to himself and rescue. I want you to write a couple verses down for this. I'd like for you to turn to them with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's time again for us to look at this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 14 through 16. It's here that Paul is writing to those who are married to an unbelieving husband. As a matter of fact, let's start reading in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, reading through verse 16. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified or set apart. There's, there's a point of holiness in that marriage. Think of it that way. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And let's listen to verse 16. A lot of people want to stop reading at verse 15. They have their out. That's why I'm grateful for the next verse. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband. Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What does it mean, sanctified? This home, even the children are affected with holiness. The, The unsaved spouse is affected by holiness, sanctification. What does that mean? It means as long as this marriage stays intact and the unbelieving spouse is willing and desirous to stay, and that unit stays intact, then there is a projection of heaven in that home, and it's you, the saved spouse. You are that source of light. And Paul's saying, keep your unsaved spouse and your children as close to that light as possible, so they can see, so they can watch, so they can take in the holiness of God and the holiness of Christ that's being lived out through you. It kind of reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine, listen, before men so that they will observe your lives, your good fruit, and glorify your God, your Father who is in heaven. Remember that God may use you to draw your spouse to himself in rescue. A couple more passages to jot down for this one. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, Paul says conduct yourselves now you're going to think these are talking about this, these words are talking about unbelievers out there outside of our gathering in our neighborhoods and cul-de-sacs but bring it home to your house if you have an unsafe spouse read these verses that way as well conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders you may be married to an outsider making the most of the opportunity let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person, including the outsider that's on the other side of the couch. It applies to that. Let me give you another verse to consider. Second Timothy chapter 2. You say, what if, what if I'm married, I don't know if he's an unbeliever, he professes or she professes to be a believer, but... They seem to be disobedient. There was a point where they connected and identified with the church, but now they no longer do. What about that? Well, first of all, time will tell if they're truly a believer or not. But even professing, I think that there are a few verses here in 2 Timothy 2 that will give you hope. Verses 24 to 26 of 2 Timothy 2. Listen to this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Sounds like don't nag and manipulate, right? The Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, even if they're on the other side of the couch. If perhaps, listen to this, God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Those are words of hope. Those are, those are words of assignment for you if you find yourself in a marriage like this. Those are words that teach you how to pray. Lord, would you give repentance to my wife? Would you give repentance to my husband? Because unless you grant them that repentance, it won't happen, and they won't come to the knowledge of the truth. As of right now, Lord, the one I dearly love Needs to come to their senses. They are in the snare of the devil and they can't escape in their own power and they're being held captive right now by Satan to do his will. teaches you how to pray. In 1 Peter we came across an interesting phrase about those unsaved that persecute you. And in some cases that may be a spouse. And it might not be a A forceful persecution, but it could be making life difficult for you. And Peter wrote about the day of visitation. Remember that? What's the day of visitation? Why should that keep us in the game against or with unbelievers? That day of visitation is not when God comes to get the bad guys. That day of visitation, we discovered in our study, is when God comes and visits them with salvation as he visited you. And on that day of visitation, they will point to you and say, it was because of your consistency and grace in spite of me. That's what God used to bring me to himself. It was in 2004, I met Steve at the church I was pastoring in Winston-Salem. He had been visiting our church for a while and bringing his teen daughter to our youth group. That was actually what got him in the door. Steve was a nice guy, a businessman, a businessman and uh, got to know him a little bit and started asking him about his story and wondered if he was married. I asked, he says, yeah, I'm still married to Linda, um, but she's she's not living with us anymore. She has moved out, and back then in North Carolina, you had to be separated for a year before the divorce could go through, and she's leaving us, and she says she's a Christian, but she doesn't have too many Passion's in that direction right now, let's just say. So I'm trying to do the best I can with my daughter, bring her to your youth group. She loves it. And, and, uh, and that was a story. And my, my, my heart just went crack. What can we do to help Steve? And Steve kept coming, good, good consistent uh, attendance, and he was serious about growing in the Lord. And I approached him one day. I said, Steve, okay, I want to go for your wife. I want us to go after her. And he looked at me like, you got to be kidding on one hand, but, but kind of like shocked and with joy On the other. He says, really? I mean, you're willing to try that? I said, well, I mean, I can't do anything. I can't change anyone's heart. I can't even make my dog come in at night, right? But I think um, it would be the right thing to pursue and see what happens. He says, okay, I'm in. How are we going to do this? I said, I need you to join the church. That's the first thing we need. He says, well, I mean, okay. That was, that was kind of subtle. <laughs> I said, because I, I need you to join the church and get in covenant with us here. Because I'm going to need to ask you to do some really hard things over the next few months, if she'll even come in and talk with us. And I need to, quite honestly, Steve, have the leverage of church discipline with you. I don't have that right now with the church. He says, all right, I'm in. He joined the church. And then I said, here's how this is going to have to work out, Steve. I said, I'm going to start working with you and discipling you one-on-one. And I'm going to come after some things in your life that really need to be put off and put on and all the stuff we've been talking about on a personal level. He says, what about my wife? I says, well, we have to do this first. We need to to demonstrate over time that God's changing you and things in your life that was a real turnoff to her and and her excuse for leaving. He said, all right, I'm in. And and I'm telling you, he was a model counselee. Um, You don't always get those. You get a lot of people that want agreement, but they don't want counseling. He wanted counseling. And we went to work, and he started changing. I said, okay, after a few, uh, a little bit of time had passed, I said, it's now time to reach for Linda. Here's what what we're going to do. I need you to approach her this week, because they had some contact with each other across town. And tell her you've been in counseling and that there's been some change in your life. And that I told you to ask her to come to a meeting. Because you're telling me you're doing a lot of changing, but I need someone that will cross-examine you that knows you well. And he did that. And, you know, Linda perked right up and said, I'll be at the next meeting. When is it? Of course I'd love to cross-examine you. You're, you're, you're a difficult person. And I want someone else to know this about you. And she came to that meeting. Man, I had the chairs set up when she came in with him and... And she took the other chair literally and turned it with her back more towards her husband than towards me and Lori. And, uh, and that, that body language was saying a lot about that day. But you know what happened over the course of the next few weeks and months? She could not deny the change of Steve's life. You remember this? She couldn't re- deny the change in Steve's life. And Steve did drop the ball in the middle of this. He wrote me an email about her and about me. Um, as far as, co- as counselor and her as far as there's no hope that she'll change. And on the day of our next counseling session, I called him and I said, Steve, tell Linda not to come to our session today, but you still come. And when he came in, I handed him this email. I printed it on. I said, I want you to read this out loud to me and my wife. And he read it out loud, and he was crestfallen. He said, I, I understand how that landed. That was wrong. That was sinful. And his wife learned that I came down on his chest with two feet that day, and he repented and was reconciled. And his wife's just like watching him change. Who is this guy? And little by little, she started visiting our church. Little by little, they'd at least sit on the opposite sides of a pew and then with their daughter between them. But eventually, daughter's off somewhere and they're sitting together. And one of the last things I was blessed to do before I left there to move to Virginia Beach. I mean, literally weeks before that move is I got to renew their vows. They wanted me to do that. And you know what? Shortly after I went to Virginia Beach, they entered ministry. Now, they not only reconciled, it was a lot of work, we had to work through a lot. But they not only reconciled, but they ended up going into ministry together and they were on Dave Ramsey, in Dave, Dave Ramsey's ministry, working with him. What happened there? Steve wasn't perfect. Steve struggled. But you know what? At some point, Steve remembered that God may use him to draw his spouse to himself for rescue. You don't know if that's your story, too. If at all possible, keep that holiness, that spot of heaven's light in that marriage. If you say, well, how long? I'll say, are you still breathing? Second, for your daily hope, remember this. Remember that God is preparing you for unique ministry. Listen, if this is your situation will you are living with an unsaved or disobedient spouse, you don't get a time out from growing in grace. You don't get a time out from being used to minister to other people. It's not like, well, i got to get this fixed in my life before I have anything to say. I remember, again, in Winston-Salem, my wife approached a lady in a church, a divorced lady in our church lady in her probably 60s or 70s, and said, would you please give a testimony at the next ladies' event? And, and, and the, this lady was just like shocked on her face and, and could hardly get words out. She's like, what, what do I have to say? My marriage has ended years ago, and I've lived in the, in the wake of just a disastrous marriage and a disastrous end to that marriage. And she says, what could I say? And my wife lovingly looked in her eyes and said, Oh my goodness, you're one of the sweetest vessels of grace in this church. We must hear from you. Not only about the difficult times, but what God has taught you. Remember that no matter what your marriage is, that God is preparing you for unique ministry. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, two of my favorite titles for him. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, but the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. All I say, all I recommend to you, though, if this, is your, if this is you, married to an unsaved or disobedient professing believer, keep notes. A journal is a great idea. A journal your prayers to God during the good days. Journal your prayers to God for wisdom and grace on the worst days. Journal what verses meant so much to you. Journal what you did wrong or said wrong that you learned from. Journal counsel that you received from a friend at church or a book that you read or an article that that you clipped. Journal all that. Why? Because I promise you God's not going to waste a difficult marriage. He's going to use it for his glory. You understand he's giving you a very niche ministry. You're going to be able to speak with grace from experience in the direction that some just don't. Remember that God, during your marriage to an unbelieving or disobedient spouse, is making sure that class is in session, and he's teaching you and training you for future ministry. That's your daily hope, two things to remember and two more things to remember. Remember? Number three, letter C, remember that God is working on your children as they daily study your life in your home environment. Your kids don't have to be too old to realize things are tense out in the living room after they're in bed, right? I mean, I remember. I remember the living room and the late nights. I remember one in the morning getting woke up to uh, very tense situations. You, some of you do, too. So I'm talking just a few years old, all through my teen years. And, you know, even as I was in my teen years in the home with two parents that loved me and provided, it was never in danger that way, but uh, my older sisters, one 10 years older and one 15 years older, approximately, they were out, they were married, they were already in life, but they had an ear back at home, too, continuing to to understand how things were at times with mom and dad. When I say children here, I'm not just talking about the young ones. I'm talking about the adult ones that have moved out that are very much aware of how things are in the marriage home. Here's what I want you to do. Remember that God is working on your children, young or already adults, as they study your life in your home environment on the best of days and on the worst of days. It kind of puts new weight in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's not just directed to fathers. It's not like mothers aren't involved. Fathers were to take the lead. Moms were to be involved in this as well. Sometimes fathers would be uh, plural to, to capture both parents in these injunctions. And the goal is to teach your children through Discipline and instruction of the Lord, and sometimes the best instruction in a home like that is, is, is for them to watch you navigate what it means to live and respond when marriage is hard and when your heart is broken. They're watching and they're learning, not just for their own life, but their future or present marriage as well. This is my story with my mom. Um, loved my dad, he loved me, he loved my mom. I mean, they stayed together. But um, I would get frustrated, too, with Dad when every night he was drunk. And my friends' dads weren't. And uh, now Dad took care of us, and he was kind to my friends, too. Please don't get me wrong, and I know this is being recorded and going out. But I knew when it was hard. I knew when Mom had tears and was on the phone with friend or another Christian and that marked me because that meant that there was a lifeline coming in and my mom was reaching for it and staying in the game and I marked that down for my life. Remember that God is working on your children as they daily study your life and home in your home environment. Then one more thing to remember. Simple outline tonight. Remember that God is putting his grace on display in your life for the world To see. He's putting his grace on display in your life for the world to see. Hey, if you put a trophy in a display case, like CCA has down this hallway, it's meant to be seen. You keep the glass clean. You might even fix some lights in there so it lights up and leave it on when all the other lights are off. If you have a trophy, it's not meant to be put in a closet. It's meant to be seen. I was surprised this week. I, w- I received a call on Monday from a friend of mine from high school. I've known him since uh, even elementary school, fifth grade, at Springfield Christian Academy out in Clarkston. He now lives in Ortonville. And he says, my dad just died. Would you come and do the funeral? I'm like, I would love to do that. I haven't seen you in forever, Jeff, and I'd, I would love to come. And what a high honor. And, and I knew a lot of my classmates would be there and a lot of my teammates where we had won state championships together and, and that was all Friday. I, the viewing was from, from 2 to 7 and then service at 7 that evening. And, and I got to see a ton of people I haven't seen in decades. We won championships together and we got trophies together. And when we got our trophies, we put them in a case like you did at CCA. Trophies are meant to be put on display. And I want you to carry the weight of that illustration into letter D. Remember that God is putting his grace on display in your life for the world to see. It means this. On paper, your marriage shouldn't work, some would tell you. A believer to an unbeliever or a believer to a a professing disobedient believer, on paper, that shouldn't work. But for some reason, you don't make sense on a human level. But there's a grace at work in your life that doesn't originate with you. It's from outside of you. But it has not only kept you on the scene and kept you in that marriage, but you have thrived in it. And you have grown as a Christian. And that's God making a trophy of His grace in you and putting it on display for others to see. Every trophy... Every CCA trophy in that trophy case down there has a unique story, a unique sport, a unique season, a unique year, and unique faces. Every trophy has a unique story, and so does your story have a uniqueness to it in your marriage to an unsaved or unbelieving spouse. This is a daily hope. These four points are daily walking with you. Pointing your mind back during the most difficult of days to renewing your mind and putting off and putting on. And a day goes by and a week goes by and a year goes by and a decade goes by. And there's struggle and there's strain and there's growth and there's grace. I want you to listen to one story and we're finished. This story I'm going to use the name Susan. This story happened again in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I preached this message, this series there. I've been preaching this series for a long time. I originally wrote it to help folks that might be out there like me, just to give them hope. And as I finished this series, I got a letter from Susan. And this letter was given to me in the fall of 2001, over two decades ago, with the promise that I could use this letter anytime I teach this material, if it will help to be an encouragement to others. I've changed her name here. It's over two decades ago. You're going to hear of two different marriages Is her language always precise biblically about what she's going to say here? No, but hear her story. Hear her story. She gave me her permission to use this, so here it goes. And she she even will refer to the group that's listening to this whenever I read it. In order to get where I am today, I have to go back to when I was saved at 11 years old. My mom was faithful in taking us to church on Sunday mornings. My father was in the Air Force and worked long hours, plus had no desire to go to church. He was at that time unsaved, so the only spiritual growth we got was at church. We did not read the Bible or pray together at home. I was impressed when I met my first husband. He came to church while we dated. He converted from Catholic to Baptist. He was saved and baptized. But a big red flag should have gone up when he said to me a few weeks before we got married, I can't do this church religious stuff, end quote. He did not go after that. But I thought my love will change him. So I married him anyway. I was 18 and I knew everything. My son grew up as I did, going to church on Sunday mornings, and we did not read the Bible or pray together either. He, was, he professed faith at 11 years old while I was separated from his dad. I am praying today for him to grow spiritually and go to church and find a growing Christian wife. At the time of the writing of this letter, he had walked away as well. It, my marriage, was not a good marriage. He had a quick temper and a lot of intimidation. You will do things only my way. After trying for 12 years and finding out about two girlfriends, I decided to take my son and move out and file for divorce. It was hard. But I felt from God's word I was justified. What a blessing it was. In a way, he he moved to Illinois and my son had to go visit, but it was only a few times. I really started to grow spiritually out on my own because I really needed God and I was scared. So when I met, I'm going to use the name Al. When I met Al, I know from his testimony that he professed to be a Christian. It was an answer to prayer because I had begun praying for a Christian husband, but I did not say a growing Christian husband. Al was and is good to me, and his marriage is better and happier than the first. I'm praying that our daughter will date only and marry a growing Christian man, When I was first married, I tried to get Al to go to church, especially after my daughter was born, but I quickly learned that bringing it up every week only made us both upset and downright angry. So I knew I had to stop doing that. So I take it to the Lord, as Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be open unto you. God will make it happen if and when he is ready, not me. I was expecting my daughter when I joined Twin City Baptist Church. I really started to grow spiritually, and I began to pray when my daughter was born for her to be saved by age 10. With God helping me bring her to church, not just on Sunday morning, and talking with her at home, and us praying together and reading the Word together. She was saved, professed faith at eight years old. There are several things that help me live with the fact that Al... Does not worship with us. Number one, any sermons on marriage really encourage me. I was very thrilled when Pastor Newcomer started the marriage series. Maybe he will get back to it soon. See, even back 20 years ago, I'd wander around in series, so you're not the first group that had to endure that. Number two, I remember the vows I made. God doesn't like divorce. Already been there, and it was difficult 11 years ago to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part. Number three, anything in my spiritual walk that makes my relationship with Christ closer helps my relationship with my husband. Number four, I have a few friends that I can confide in at church. My husband is a lot like your dad, Pastor. And they don't, he, didn't come, he doesn't come to church, and he can't wash dishes right or do laundry right. And he sure can't get a project done at home fast enough. In other words, my husband's just like the rest of the husbands out there in the church, right? Number five, I need to help keep a peaceful home, especially for my daughter's sake. She doesn't need to hear fussing every week about church. There was a time when I was jealous and frustrated at God. I would see families coming to church together and I would think, God, why don't you touch his heart now to come to church? But I know it is in his time. Also, I began to realize I should not pray for his church attendance, but for his spiritual needs. He has his own opinions on God's word, so I must listen and then tell him the way I learned from church. I love the story in Luke 18 about the widow. Verse 5 says, Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continued caring she weary me. So that is what I am doing. I'm wearying God with prayer for my husband's rescue, which will lead to his worshiping with us. Also, I pray for my attitudes at home to be good to help Al spiritually. She sent that to me and said, use this if it will encourage others. I, I knew her husband, Al. He wouldn't come to church. Nicest man you'd meet at, on the street. He was a painter. And when we had work to do, when we were redoing a reno, doing a renovation at that church in the fellowship hall, we hired him. And number one, he's a good painter. But number two, I wanted him around so I could talk with him. And he would talk about anything. we. Shared some common likes and hobbies. He was kind of an outdoor guy, as I, as I recall. And, but as soon as I just in, uh, invited him to church, he would ice up. Not mean, but um, conversation was over. And that, my heart just went out to Susan. Because this is what she went home to. And the, the wire she had to balance on as she walked through life married to a man that she truly loved and who was a good man, but her heart was broken. May her story give you hope and help. I want to ask you to turn to one more passage of Scripture. This isn't our last message, as I mentioned. We're going to have one more. But I do want to take you to a passage that's familiar with you that will give you hope and help just one day at a time. This daily hope is good for 24 hours every day, and then you get a fresh batch for the next 24 hours. This daily hope is consistent with our Lord teaching us how to pray, where he says, give us today our daily bread. Give us today what we need, not just physically, but spiritually, just to make it through the rest of this day. Give give us today what we need today. Don't give us tomorrow's help today. We just need today, and we'll call out for tomorrow. I think this familiar psalm does that. It gives nouns and verbs to our trust in God even when we're being opposed. It's Psalm 27. Psalm 27. You know this psalm, this heart of David. But I want you to hear these nouns and verbs as if you, and some of you don't have to imagine, under the sound of my voice, you're there. You're in a marriage to an unsaved person or a disobedient professing believer. These words just are charged with new meaning or new application for the fresh meaning, the timeless meaning of these verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing have I asked from the Lord that I shall seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. He says, that's, that's what I pray for. I, I don't pray for the bad guys to get theirs. I pray that I'll see my life and everyone and everything in my life through the lens of the beauty of the Lord. For in the day of trouble, verse 5, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up On a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I shall see. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. You might want to write ride out, Next uh, to verse 11 in the margin. Repent, renew, replace. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, yes. Wait for the Lord. You say, well, there's, I mean, what kind of enemy is this in Psalm 27? Usually David's enemies had swords about them and spears that were thrown. Yeah, but if David found such trust and peace and turmoil, as we read in Psalm 27, when his enemies used swords and javelins, won't this psalm be true for anything less? Won't this psalm give you what you need to grab hold of for daily hope? And guess what? There are more psalms like that in this sufficient, wonderful, and readily available word of God. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer this evening? Lord Jesus, thank you for the daily hope you give us to stay in the day in and day out, the rest of our lives, needing to renew our minds with Scripture, where we find hope and examples. We find what we need to put off and what we need to put on every day for the rest of our lives. Uh, That's for all of us. But for those of us, under the sound of my voice, that are struggling in a marriage with an unbeliever or a disobedient professing believer it suddenly takes on a new layer of urgency for us. We thank you for the resources you've promised and you've delivered, but sometimes we just need some seeds of hope to keep going each day. And I pray that your word accomplished that this evening with these four points and this story shared by Susan. One more testimony of your faithfulness. So may it be the words and the trust of Psalm 27 that becomes the wind in our sails that takes us through one more day, one more week, another year, another decade, so that you can put your glory on display for the world to see in our life and in our marriage. And Lord, at the end of the day, of course, we pray for the rescue of our unsaved spouses and our professing yet disobedient spouses. Rescue them, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.